Ephesians chapter 4. We're going through a series called The Gift, The Gifts, and The Body. We do have booklets for you to take notes in the back. I would encourage you to take advantage of that, please. Because what we're doing right now is we are examining five office gifts. No, that's not a stapler or paper clips or anything like that. It is gifts that the Lord has blessed the church with in order to bring greater clarity, discernment, teaching, and edification through the Word. These are all Word-centered offices. And so it's paramount that we go slow, maybe slower than some of you are used to, and that's okay, it's not going to kill us. But to take the time to unpack each one of these offices and get a, a, a means of discernment about how we should understand them, how they should be handled. If you would, in chapter 4, look with me starting in verse 7. speaks about the giving of these gifts. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Mitch, could you bring me down? I'm getting some feedback here. I'm sorry. I can always talk louder. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And we understand that as Jesus being triumphant over the cross. And this Old Testament passage is is being applied to this because all enemies are now subject to him. And he has used this opportunity to take the spoils of his victory and to dispense them amongst the body of Christ. He says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he descended into the lower parts of the earth? And I take that to mean, and there are a couple of different understandings, but to mean the fact that he came down to earth and made himself visible as a man and lived a life as we did and died a death as a criminal would. He he who, verse 10, he who descended is also himself, uh, who ascended far above all the heavens, Why? So that he might fill all things. Now this is what we need to understand. Now that he has ascended, he has an ascension ministry. And it wasn't until he resurrected that he could serve as our priest before God. And that's why we spent all that time on the priesthood of the believer before this. How we are priests as he is a priest and there is a ministry to be had. And it could only be had with a living priest. Why is that? Because the offering that he offers is his own blood. Well, he had to die to bring about the offering. He has to live in order to present the offering before God because it's a sufficient offering. So he is our priest in that stead. Him being that priest, we are now a priest. But it's not only that. Now that he's ascended, he has got a ministry to fulfill. And the ministry that he seeks to fulfill from his ascended position is distributing gifts amongst the church And notice what it says there at the very end of 10, because it's very odd. So that he might fill all things. In other words, everything that Christ desires to do to bring about God's plan, he's going to do it through you and I as the church. He is going to operate himself through us, and he is going to do it by blessing the church with gifts. Now in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, and we talked about this last week. 
An apostle is one who is sent out. An apostle is one who has been commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus. They are people who carry the word. And they are listed as those who are going to be laying a foundation out. And they were coupled together with this office that we see next in 11, and some as prophets. And they're coupled that way three times. Now, how do we determine what we need to look at here? Hopefully we can walk through this. Just stick with me, okay? Turn back one chapter to three, and let's look at just a couple of verses so that we can put it together of how this is working out. Chapter three, and we're going to start looking at verse four. Because we know, and as we just read before this, in the Old Testament, you see prophets everywhere, yes? In fact, starting with Isaiah, with the exception of Lamentations, you've got nothing but prophets that fulfill out the rest of the Old Testament. So you want to know about major and minor prophets and understand their ministry and what's going on? Good grief. God has not left us ignorant for that whatsoever. We get it. Our problem is, is we're not so much concerned with Old Testament prophets. We need to be concerned with New Testament prophets. We say, well, how do we know that? Look at chapter 3, and let's start here in verse 4. By referring to this, now what is this? Certain things have been revealed to Paul. He calls that a revelation, and he also calls it an administration, or maybe if you've got a New King James Version, it will use the word dispensation. So in other words, during this present time of stewardship, God's revealed some new things that he never showed before. And in the Old Testament, we know that the church was never mentioned. We talk about the first coming of Christ. We talk about the second coming of Christ. But there is an intermediate time of the church that is given, and that's us. Now, that's pretty special, if for no other reason. And hopefully it gives you some significance of the fact of, I didn't come to church this morning. I actually am the church, and I play a significant role in the grand scheme of God's plan. Well, what has been revealed to Paul? Now watch this, what he says, verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now watch this. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Old Testament time. Nobody knew about it, but here's what he says. As it has now. Now if you remember a couple weeks ago, I told you to mark it. Has now. Right now, in this new age, something different is happening. In the church dispensation, because the Jews denied Christ, God's doing something different now. He's showing us something different that he didn't ever have any sort of precursor to. And so all this is coming through Paul. Paul writes 13 books of the New Testament. He's got a lot to say about the church. We need to understand that. Now is a time of revelation. Now is a new stewardship. And now we need to understand how these offices that are brought up in 411 are benefiting the church. And if you remember, he says, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and, what does it say? Prophets, and notice this, in the Spirit. And what is it? Verse 6, let's cover that real quick and then we'll move into the rest of it. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So if you'll remember, it's the giving of the gospel that actually brings Jews into an equal standing of believing, or sorry, Gentiles into an equal standing of believing Jews, and they're all one, and they're all a brand new thing. Is everybody with me? Running on fumes this morning, encourage me. Okay, so here we go. In order to understand this idea of prophets, and what would that look like in a New Testament time? We're going to have to first ask the question, what is prophecy? 
Now, when we deal with the gift of prophecy, when we start looking at 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to go over this again more in detail. But just to give you a brief understanding, what in the world do we talk about when we talk about prophecy? Can we bring that up, Dave? Prophecy. Should be the next slide after the Ephesians 3 stuff. Prophecy. Here's probably the best definition I found. I looked at a lot of them. This is the best one that I found. Again, this will be on the website later if you want to look at it. Prophecy is the ability to speak for God. Does that sound pretty simple? Pretty simple. It's amazing it took me that long to find a definition this concise. It's not merely foretelling, though some of that is included. It is forth-telling. It is speaking the word of God. You say, well, what is the difference? Well, here's how we see this broken up. Let's go to the next one. When you deal with the idea of prophets and the office of the prophet, you find that primarily the office of a prophet is not exclusively, but primarily predictive in nature. In other words, they're going to unfold some things for us that we don't know at the time. Now, if you think about where Paul is in the midst of New Testament time period, I mean, if you think about just where he's at, Revelation hasn't been written yet, probably a large majority. Some of the Gospels haven't even been written yet. So that's a pretty interesting place for him to be chronologically when he's writing something about the apostles and the prophets were given for a foundational reason for the church. It's usually predictive, and this is what we call foretelling the truth. It's the idea of it's not existing yet, but it's something that God has revealed to me that is going to happen. So it deals with future events, or it deals with God's will, or it deals with possible judgment. And it usually always deals with the call to repentance in light of the warning that the prophet gives. So if you were to go back and you were to read from Isaiah to Malachi, the Spanish prophet, everybody with me? Give me some credit here, people. Come on. We'll start counting like a horse if you don't. Moving on. But when you do that, you've got this constant appeal to people who are wayward. And they usually give you a glimpse of the consequences that are going to happen because of their actions, calls them to repentance, and then gives them some kind of glimpse of a future glory that is going to come about. And we find that a lot of those things point to the coming of the Messiah in his kingdom, and it ends up being future. By the way, at the end of August, we're having a prophecy conference. Let us know. We'll sign you up. Good stuff. So that was usually that ministry. But that still existed for the New Testament time as well. We're just dealing with a new time period because of the rejection of the Jews and the brand new thing of the church. When you deal with the office of pastors and teachers, you deal with the idea of a prescriptive dispensing of the word of God. In other words, it's centered around what God has already said, and how do we understand it in context? And how do we present it in our lives? This is why I use that word exposition of God's already revealed word for the growth of the church. God's already told us what it is. The difficulty is taking it off the paper and putting some shoe leather on it so my life begins to change because the Holy Spirit is now working with the word of God in my life. So this would be more what is called forth telling. We're just telling forth what's already been revealed. So when we talk about the idea of what is prophecy, those are the two distinctions that we see planned out in Scripture. Now, when we move forward from that, we need to take a look at what is the goal of prophecy. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot it down, you can. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, Paul makes a very succinct statement. He says, but one who prophesies, who's speaking forward the Word of God, whether it's predictive in nature or what's already been revealed and expositing that for the sake of people, speaks to men, why? For their edification, building up, exhortation, a correction that needs to happen because of sin in one's life, and consolation. 
Because everybody needs comfort. When you live in a place where your hope can't be found, you need the Word of God in order to keep your eyes on where the hope to be found out ahead. That's the purpose of unfolding this. So those three things are what seek to be accomplished in the goal of prophecy. Now, with that being said, what does a New Testament prophet do? Prophet comes from the Greek word prophetes, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. But here's how the lexicon describes it. Lexicon is a, is a um, rocket fuel edition of Strong's. Okay, that's what it is. If you took Strong's concordance and you poured rocket fuel on it, you'd have a Greek lexicon. <laughs> a proclaimer or expounder of divine matters or concerns that could not ordinarily be known except by special revelation. Now take a moment and really feel the Bible that you have. I know that sounds weird, but think about what you have in your hands. You have God's special revelation. It's not an ordinary book. People have been trying to prove it wrong for years and can't. There's something absolutely unique about the Scriptures. And if God has spoken, He's done so in such a simple and profound way as to give it to us today in black letters on white paper and some red letters, let's be honest. But isn't that profound? The idea that the office of a prophet is going to tell you things that God has revealed and we're sitting here with the complete Bible going, okay, I have everything that I need to know about God in order to live a successful life for His glory. I'm not lacking in anything. And that's not even to talk about what's already happened to us in Christ. It's just the fact that God's made Himself known. That's a pretty big deal. Who are? Well, number one, let's look at this real quick so we review it. In Ephesians, we have three instances of apostles and prophets put together. Now, this is the same slide from last week, except I switched... Switch the words. Prophets in participation or in partnership with apostles. They're grouped together for a reason. Number one, we see that they're a foundation in 2.20. Number two, we see that they are revealers of church doctrine in 3.5. And the last one, that they are gifts to the body of Christ. How are they gifts? Word-centered office. Let's see this. Who are the New Testament prophets that we need to pay attention to? Well, the first one is Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, very important chapter. Now what's interesting about this is this is the event where the triumphal entry takes place. He's coming into Jerusalem. People are laying down palm branches. It seems like public knowledge is crystal clear on the fact that he is the promised Messiah. And they're all welcoming him in. But look at verse 11 of chapter 21, a very interesting statement. And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It was a widespread, publicly known, crowd-participating, knowledgeable idea. If I know anything about a Jesus, I can say with a Jesus that we are all in unison, that this Jesus, who this is, is a prophet. They understand what a prophet is. Everybody see that? Yes? Okay, just making sure we're awake. Go down to verse 43. Because a lot transpires here. 
There's a lot of questioning about Jesus' authority, which is very interesting in relation to a prophet. Let me ask you this. From the very minimal that you know about what a prophet is, do they have some sense of authority? Yes. Why? Because they're speaking for God. Because what it really comes down to is the message isn't about the person delivering it. It's about the one who commissioned the person to deliver the message. It's that person's message. Therefore, their stamp gives it the authority. It's interesting in this chapter, if you want to read it throughout the week, 21. There's constantly a question of the Pharisees, the scribes. By what authority do you do these things? And you see this over and over and over. Now, when we started this whole series, we dealt with the idea of the vineyard, the planting of the vineyard. The master of the vineyard, the vine dresser guy, he goes away. He hires people to come in. They handle things horribly. And you remember, the Pharisees realize it's talking about them. Let's look at that verse that we started with again. In 21, look at verse 43. Therefore, this is Jesus talking to the scribes and Pharisees. I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Everybody remember that? And then he gives a very scathing rebuke to them. See, Jesus didn't have a problem holding their feet to the fire. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. See, happy hippie Jesus goes out the window on that one, right? Verse 45, but when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, now watch this because they weren't ignorant. They understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, let's kill this guy. Everybody remember early on they plotted to take his life because of the trouble he was causing by his teaching. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. The crowds knew. The crowds understood. The Pharisees probably knew but were refusing to come to that understanding. But they didn't dare touch him because they knew that a mob mentality would ensue. Why? Because in that first century... The Jewish people understood the significance of a prophet and they knew that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet. One more interesting thing. We don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot it down, we're all familiar with this one in John 4. In John chapter 4 is Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Okay, He said to her, go and call your husband and come here. Man, did Jesus know how just to go like that to people? Where's that button? He did that, but he did it lovingly. Don't get me wrong. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you've correctly said you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Does this guy know how to party or what? Man, that was a nervous, awkward situation. But then I love her response. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now what's he doing there? He's telling her things that he couldn't have possibly known. But because they were revealed to him from God, he can tell her and he tells her truthfully about her life. That's what we want to pay attention to. Jesus is an example of a a New Testament prophet. How about John the Baptist, our second guy? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, John the Baptist. Or if anybody wants to label him Creepy John. Some of you know where that comes from. I think that's hilarious. 
Because he was. He was a creepy dude. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 76. This is a prophecy that's given by Zacharias in the temple. All these things that are getting ready to happen with the birth of Jesus. and it, It's great stuff, but I don't want to get sidetracked on the things. Yes, we want to know about Jesus and study all this stuff, but we're looking at John the Baptist to see what it says about him. Verse 76, he says, And you, child, will be called the what? The prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now that's significant. We're going to see why here in a second. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation. Notice what's entailed in a prophet in their commissioning. John in particular is going to pave the way for the Messiah. But he's also going to unfold the knowledge of salvation. Has God been doing that for years and years and years to Israel through prophets? Very much so. So notice it falls in line with that. He says here, by the forgiveness of their sins. That's a sweet message. Notice it says here, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Flip over just a couple of chapters to seven so we can see where Jesus wants to make a comment on this situation. And this is really an incredible scenario because John, before his birth, is commissioned to be a prophet. We understand that. And what's crazy about John that's strange from anything else we see in Scripture is he actually has the Holy Spirit before he is born. If you remember, whenever Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, uh, John's mother Elizabeth, come together and they're having a conversation. John leaps in the womb. Leaps. Because the spirit inside of him, inside of the womb, is stirred. I don't think National Geographic can explain that. I don't know, but it's incredible. John knew from early on what was going on. What's interesting about John 7 is because of John's condition being in prison, And everything that has happened when he thought all these grand and glorious things were going to take place because of the commissioning that was given to him as a forerunner of the Messiah, he's discouraged. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. Are you the coming one? Now you would figure everything that was spoken about John, why would he doubt? Because that's what our situation often does no matter what the promises of God have done in in our way. Our present situation, when we get focused on it, causes us to doubt. And so Jesus begins to do miracles, and he tells John's disciples, go back and show him what you're seeing, because these things testify to who he is. And his disciples leave. And then Jesus turns around, and he uses this for a very good teaching portion. Look at verse 24, 724. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. This is interesting. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed? Shaken by the wind? And you say, what does that mean? Was John weak? No. John was burly. He wore camels. I don't even know what that is. Camel fur? I just picture him as a real hairy dude who probably needed a razor. That's all I know. He ate locusts and wild honey. Right? So Whole Foods is getting his business. A strange guy. Out in the desert, people are coming to him. He's kind of a nomad of sorts. 
You don't live in that kind of situation and worry about getting dirt under your fingernails and whether or not your cuticles are fine. It's just not a situation. Did you go out to see somebody weak and needed a lot of pampering? No, that's not what you went for. Verse 25, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. So what would draw groups, thousands of people, to leave inhabited areas and stop what they're doing as far as their weekly work and walk out into the midst of the desert? Look what he says. Verse 26, but what did you go out to see? What's it say? You went out to see a prophet. You knew that when this person spoke, he was speaking the words of God. That he had something to say that was very relevant to your current condition, at least spiritually speaking. Therefore, it was worth taking note of. A prophet, yes, I say to you, and one who is, now watch this, more than a prophet. He wasn't just someone who was dispensing God's word, whether he was foretelling or forthtelling. He actually ended up being more than that. Why? Jesus explains, verse 27. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. That's in Malachi 3.1. In other words, he wasn't just someone who spoke forward God's word. He's actually someone who is fulfilling God's word in your sight. Now, if there's any concern about, well, good grief, John, everything he knew and he was doubting, was he really saved? I don't know about that. Look what Jesus says about him. Verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And I wish I could preach for days on that last subject, but I'm not going to. But out of everyone who has ever been born, physically speaking, Jesus' appraisal as God in the flesh is, John is the greatest. He is the one who came to forerun, to set out the runway, the landing strip, for Jesus to taxi in and make himself known. How about one last person we can look at? There's many, but I just wanted to pick a few to show you how it's centralized around the word. Turn with me to Acts 11. I like these two examples here because they're strange. And anytime you see something strange in the Bible, pay attention because it's going to be really cool if you dig it up. In Acts chapter 11, we see where persecution has occurred. People are breaking out against the church. People are not happy about the fact that Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. Barnabas ends up going to a place called Antioch, which is up north right before you would turn that curve around the Mediterranean Sea and head into the Galatian area. And he's starting to see a major harvest that's going on of people. People are responding to the gospel. He doesn't know what to do. So he runs off and he finds this guy that's been kind of a hermit in seclusion for a long time named Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1, you find out that Paul and Barnabas belonged to this church in Antioch, and it was actually full of prophets at that time is how it's distinguished. But when we look at Acts chapter 11, look at verses 27 and 28. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now that's interesting, just real quick geographical note. Jerusalem is actually south of Antioch. How in the world can we say come down? We usually think moving from north to south. It's the reason because the elevation of the city of Jerusalem was above the majority of the cities that were around them. And so Luke, being a very careful and particular person, takes note of the fact that they would have to come down from the plain. He's actually getting all geographical, typographical. What is it? 
Somebody give me the word. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Topographical. Coming down into this and moving north into Antioch. So notice, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus. He stood up and he began to indicate, notice this, by the what? Spirit. The Holy Spirit's involved in this. He began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be, sorry, that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And that word world there, if you look at your marginal note, is understood as the inhabited world. The places where people live is the idea that it's dealing with. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Now what's interesting about Claudius when he was Caesar is from AD 41 to AD 54 it was his reign. When you look at people like Josephus, who was a Jewish man who was a historian of the first century, and he documents it, you find out from 44 to 49 A.D. was incredible famines throughout the land. Uh, you have another guy, his name was uh, Suetonius, and he was a Roman historian at the time. He actually chronicled different droughts that took place during that time. It all happens just as Agabus had predicted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because God wanted them to know something. And what this does is this spurs on a giving campaign so that the people of God in different areas down in Jerusalem would be adequately provided for, even though food was going to be scarce, and the church started ministering to one another by sharing with one another. This prophecy was meant to provoke people into action. That's the idea. We see Agabus pop up again. Acts chapter 21. Turn there with me, please. Acts 21, just over to your right. And this gives us some insight on, on some, some other different um, roles as prophets as well. We're going to start in verse 8. If you turn over to Acts 21, we're going to start in verse 8. Paul has been receiving warnings about going back to Jerusalem at this time. And if he goes back to Jerusalem, there's trouble for him. Uh, the Spirit has revealed that through a few people. But look at verse 8. On the next day, we, that's very interesting. Who's we? We is Luke, who wrote this. Paul, who he's paying attention to his life right now and chronicling that, and everybody that was with him. We left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist. Does everybody remember in Ephesians 4.11 what our next one is? Apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Here's the idea of an evangelist, and it's Philip. We're going to look at his life next week. Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Seven from what? Well, when they were having problems distributing food, and the apostles got taken away from their ministry of the word and got involved in trying to handle money and distributing food amongst people within the church, everything got out of whack, and so they had to commission seven people to take up that responsibility so that the apostles could go back to exclusively ministering the word and prayer. So he was one of those guys at that time. We're probably most familiar with Stephen, who was stoned to death because of his testimony before the Pharisees. But it says here, he's one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Everybody see that? I think I got all the S's in there. But here's a great thing that lets you know. Women could be prophets. That's a good thing. We don't see any female apostles. We didn't see any last week. We don't see any in Scripture. We do see female prophets in this. Female prophets with an evangelist daddy. How did that work out at home? Awkward when sin was in the mix, I'm sure. Well, the Lord says this. Well, you need to get saved. I mean, I don't know what that looked like, but it was probably interesting. Verse 10. 
And as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. That guy again? Yes, he shows up. And here's what he says. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. Now stop. Prophets could tend to be a little dramatic in order to get their message across. My wife has nothing to say about me. That's a snarky grin. Moving on. And here's what he said. This is what the who? Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say this is what Agabus says. That's very interesting. Remember, the role of the prophet is always a conduit through which God seeks to communicate what he wants people to know at that time. Okay? So this is what the Holy Spirit is telling me. He says, In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, this is not a very positive guy either. But sometimes prophecy is like that. You remember? It's for the edification and the exhortation and the consolation. That's what it means to accomplish when it's administered, as Paul told us. So notice he predicts something in the future. If you want to write it down next to this, Acts 28.17 is the exact moment that this takes place. And Luke, being the meticulous historian that he is, he chronicles it. Acts 28 verse 17 is when this takes place. Now, why do we look at all these issues with New Testament prophets? Here's the reason why. Can we go to the next slide, Dave? The main issue when we talked about apostles deals with the idea of authority, but a closed canon of Scripture. If apostles still exist today, then God is still speaking. And that really puts a lot of things waffled. Because now we got to go back and check their message with the Scripture, but if the Scripture's not closed, how do we know that that's all that there is that God has revealed? It becomes real dicey. However, if we take the word for what it says, that the apostles were mainly the twelve. And when the apostle John died about 99 AD, apostleship was over. They served their, their whole goal, revealers of church doctrine, establishing a foundation, and being a gift to the church. That office became fulfilled with the establishment of the Scripture, and there was nothing else that God needed to say to us. Therefore, the canon, the measurement of the New Testament, is now closed. The issues were authority, because that's what happens when God commissions people with His Word, but also whether or not God has done speaking on those issues. And we determined, yes, He very much was, and saw some of the dangers about that. But with a prophet, if prophets exist today, I've had a lot of people claim to be prophets. We, I alluded to these last week. Jim Jones, you're familiar with that situation? He was often called the prophet, Jim Jones. David Koresh was a self-proclaimed prophet. So we find a lot of dicey characters in the midst of using this word prophet now. Prophets deal with authority. Why is that? Because they're going to say, I'm speaking on behalf of God, or I'm speaking by the Holy Spirit. I've got something to tell you. And it's meant to be authoritative because it came from God. When God speaks... It's true, but the interesting thing is it also deals with the doctrine of inerrancy. And here's what inerrancy is, that when God speaks, he doesn't make a mistake. Do you believe that? Okay, because here's the problems with that if we believe that God could, let's use our word, fudge a little when he reveals things in his word. Why is that? Because then you can't trust him. And how could he ever be consistent if he's going to run the risk of getting some things wrong, 
See, this is something really interesting. This is a doctrine we need to pay attention to, not only for the validity of our Bibles, but to understand other religions in the world. Islam actually holds that Allah, what they call God, says that it's permissible to lie as long as it furthers his purposes. Does God condone lying? No, because it would be contradictory to his character. And from what we understand of right and wrong, we see that there's friction in that. Well, how could I ever trust him? You're not to ask any questions. You're just to bow down and recite incantations. That's all you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be mindless in your following and let what you're saying go ahead and brainwash you further into that issue. That's why Allah's real name is Satan. Because it's a distortion of the truth. It's a distortion of the character of how we should look at God. And it flies in the face of when God speaks, he's always telling you the truth. Well, not on this occasion. Circumstances determine meaning. No, context determines meaning. Let's get that straight. So how do we need to understand this? One scholar that that commented on the idea of prophecy and prophets. Go to the next one, Dave. The biblical category of prophecy seems to me to involve, now watch this, inerrancy and trustworthy authority. Doesn't your message have to be true in order for it to be trustworthy? Okay. So look what he says. Which modern day prophets do not have and rarely even claim. It's not so much about having a trustworthy message. It's about getting a following and patting an ego. It's about narcissism exploding. That's what it turns out to be for modern day prophets. It's about money usually. Sex, slandering celestial deities. We see all this throughout the Bible. He says here, when they do claim prophetic status, it seems to me that they often want the authority of the prophetic category and the benefits that go with it without the corresponding responsibility. And this is one way that we've seen everybody in life paint themselves in this victim mentality while modern-day prophets who claim to be so aren't any different. Now, here's what disturbs me is when it creeps itself into conservative scholarship in the church. Let's go to the next one. Wayne Grudem. I say that name, do you know it? Wayne Grudem. He wrote a book called Systematic Theology. It is the most used systematic theology to train pastors, missionaries, what have you, in all the Bible colleges and seminaries all across America. Uh, I have a very friendly relationship with this man, sarcasm implied, okay? But he's a very interesting character because his belief on salvation leans very much Catholic. His interaction with the Spirit is very much charismatic, if not charismania. And he is also a fatalist as far as God is concerned. So it's very odd, and yet he's the most read guy. You might even have his volume on your shelf. Now this is an interesting quote, and I was actually conversing with Pastor Steve a couple of weeks ago over this quote about what's going on, because the guy quoting this, his name is Dan Wallace, and he is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Greek language. When they dig up manuscripts, they fly him in to read them. That's, how, that's where he's at, okay? Here's what he says about Grudem's comments regarding prophets and apostles and how he views prophets and prophecy in the Ephesians text. Now watch this. Grudem argues that the apostles and prophets are identical here. In other words, there's not a difference between the two. This is important to his view on, of New Testament prophecy. On the one hand, He holds to a high view of Scripture. In other words, the Scripture is God's spoken word. The Scripture is supreme. The Scripture has the authority. 
Namely, that the autographs, that's the original manuscripts, the autographs are inerrant, completely free of error, okay? Don't get lost in the quotation, stick with me here. And on the other hand, now watch this, he believes that non-apostolic prophets, so if you weren't an apostle, and he believes in modern day apostles, if you're not an apostle that's called by God, and yet you're a prophet who's going to speak something today, non-apostolic prophets, both in the early church and today, mixed error with truth. Does everybody see that that's weird? You say, I don't understand the quote. Do you at least see that it's weird? He says the Bible is inerrant. And when God speaks, he speaks truthfully. But when a modern day prophet speaks for God, mm, some of it might be true. Some of it might be wrong. It's consensual, is that what you said? Oh, it conflicts, yes, absolutely. It's a contradiction. And yet we've seen numerous people trained under this idea. Exactly. Isn't that disturbing? Now, am I saying that Wayne Grudem's not saved? No. I'm saying that he is. But he's sorely off base on this. And he has influenced thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are in the church today. And we wonder sometimes why we got a waffle on an issue about things like how we should handle sex relations in the church. Whether or not drug use is okay. Whether or not we should be serving people, loving people, sharing the gospel with people. And we're always looking for an out or, or a little sliver there to where we can kind of slide out like snakes so we devoid all the responsibility. It's because we ultimately have been taught that God's word can't be totally true because people who speak for him often get it wrong. This is why we should never claim the modern day mantle of prophet. It is not something that exists today. How about this? I found his actual quote in his book on it. Now look, the name of his book, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today. Came out in 1988. Here's his definition. Grudem defines prophecy as an unreliable human speech act in response to a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Does that concern you? Yeah. Speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Turn to 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. Now here's what's amazing. You know this. But I want to get it in front of your face so that we understand how exalted this truth is so that we can see more clearly how dark Comments like that are. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, just the first part. All Scripture is inspired by God. If you have an NIV translation, it says God breathed. If it is true, if it is truth, it's because it was spoken by God's inspiration in doing so. God does not have lies as part of his agenda. To say so says that he needs sin to get his will accomplished. Does God need sin? No. Because when we come to that conclusion, it actually says, well, God must be subservient in some way to sin because he needs it in order to get his will to completion. Does everybody see 
How an understanding like that easily bypasses something so plain in black and white in our Bibles and runs amok in all this theoretical thinking and philosophy and psychology and all this mess we want to talk about where we get in a headspace. But as soon as we want to hold up the Word of God and says, this is where I stand, I shall not be moved, now all of a sudden everybody's got a problem because it goes against the popular opinion of the day. This man is highly influential. Highly influential. Probably one of the most influential scholars on the face of the earth right now. And this is what he believes about that subject. It's insane. Now, I prefer to opt for a better view, and hopefully it will be an encouragement to you, and not to lose sight of the quote in the midst of it. But you really can't go wrong with Lewis Sperry Chafer. And if you've never had the opportunity to read his systematic theology, it's fantastic. There are things I disagree with him on, but it's great. Dave, can we bring it up? The very nature of, this is, this is what I wrote, the very nature of the Bible's accuracy shows that prophecy must be inerrant. In other words, when God speaks, He's always telling you the truth. That usually becomes the hard part we have to deal with because He's usually crystal clear in everything He's trying to communicate. Otherwise, we cannot trust the Scriptures. Here's what Lewis Perry Schaefer says. Historical data set forth in the original writings are inerrant and prophecy not only discloses the oncoming events of the future, but provides unfailing assurance that all that is predicted will be executed by the sovereign and therefore irresistible competency of God. Now here's what he's saying. Everything that we've seen already revealed in the scripture is absolutely true and it's come true to a T. There's been no waffling. Even the details of Scripture, as people have dug historically, unearthed things in archaeology, they have found profound discoveries that all of a sudden they went back to their Bibles and said, oh, we we can't ridicule that anymore. That was actually true all along. And there are records, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that have happened recently. In fact, again, let me plug the prophecy conference. A man's going to be here to teach. His name is Dr. Randall Price, and he is an archaeologist. And he has found some insane things. He's been over to uh, the Holy Land 120 times, I think it is, leading tours, doing excavations, all kinds of things. He's got a few things to say about archaeology in relation to the Bible and how it proves the Bible over and over to be true every time, every time, every time. It's incredible. So what Chafer's saying is, is we got enough groundwork in the Scripture to see that it's fulfilled as it is. So when we speak of the future, why why would you ever expect for God to operate differently? He doesn't. If he's telling you the truth now about things you know, there may be some things that we don't understand or don't know yet. Guess what? He's going to tell you the truth about that. Why? Because God is truth. It's not that he's just telling you the truth. He is the truth. And he can't tell you anything apart from his nature. God is not a contradiction. So when he speaks in his word, he speaks authoritatively. If he brought a prophet to the front, he's going to speak prophetically through them, but it's going to be true. It's not going to be mixed with error. There is not a margin of error in that situation. He goes on to say this, Thus, has the divine authority of the Scriptures been demonstrated in the grand array of predictions already fulfilled, and thus it will be demonstrated in the plenary, that means the whole, realization of all that is yet unfulfilled. In other words, when you study Revelation, you can scratch your head, but it's not because you don't have answers. It's because God hasn't brought it to pass yet, but it will come to pass just as He said it will. Why is that important? Because all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired 
by him, telling us the truth about everything. And what I have found is that often our apprehension in life is we just don't want to come to terms with the truth. We want to talk about how there's wiggle room. We want to talk about, well, there's a place to waffle. Well, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of up for debate there and kind of things. Everything that we need to know, it's not. We can't afford to play that type of game. Are there prophets today? Yes, false ones. All of them. All of them. How do we know that? Because God doesn't need to reveal anything else to us. His word is already perfect because he breathed it himself. Take joy. And if you don't have one, take one from us. We'll glad gladly give you one. Take joy the fact that you live in a country that has an abundance of these. We will be accountable at the judgment seat of Christ for how well we knew it, and not just knew it, but applied it. Because it is truth. It is the only truth. There is no other truth. When somebody comes along and wants to tell you that it's a truth, you stop them, put your finger on their lips, that usually gets their attention real quick. And then you flip this thing open and you check everything they have to say with this. When I talk to you, let me go ahead and say, I am not a prophet. So I do have the risk of running truth mixed with error. Because I'm trying to exposit this. You know what? Bypass me and go to the source. Go to the Word of God that has been breathed out by Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Holy Word. I thank You that it is true beyond understanding. That nothing else compares to it. That there are no competing truths that there are no better answers, that there is no greater way. Father, help us to see ourselves in the light of Scripture. To not trust when people tell us that they are prophets. That when we see fanatical things like that now, we understand prophets, yes, a gift to the church, a blessing to the church, served their purpose foundationally revealed the truth to us and passed off the scene. How blessed we are to have this book. How blessed we are that you invite us to draw in near like a mother invites a child to come close and to know you more. Father, may that be the cry of our hearts and we can know you more because we have your word. Praise God for that. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.